0: Max, you're a genius. So yeah. I totally agree with everything you've said.
1: Everything, Max. I'll, take,
0: I'll take that specific piece of recording and then <laughs> <laughs> whenever I say something.
1: I like it. You can make it like a ringtone on your phone.
0: <laughs> Hello everyone, welcome to Thoughts. My name is Max Forster. And I'm Hamish Stewart. Today on the show we have Dr. David Baker. He gained his Ph.D. at Johns Hopkins University, and after teaching for several years at the University of Hawaii, he is now a distinguished professor in the Department of English and Comparative Literature at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill. His work focuses on early modern literature and history, with an emphasis on Ireland as well as the digital humanities. Thank you so much for coming on the show today.
1: I'm so glad to be here. Hi to both of you. I know Max from a class we had together, and I'm really looking forward to this. Hi, guys.
2: Hi. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. Today, we're going to talk about a movement that was highly influential in both disciplines represented at our table or our Zoom conference, philosophy and literary studies, postmodernism, as well as its contemporaneous movement, poststructuralism.
0: Right. And uh, what I find remarkable about postmodernism is that on the one hand, it really was influential, as you say, Hamish. But on the other hand, it is often reduced to platitudes and simply misunderstood. Uh, I was in class with Professor Baker, actually. And um, David, you asked us what postmodernism was. We came up with answers like nothing is objective and there are no absolute truths, etc. So... I think the complexity of postmodernism goes unrecognized a lot of the times. Uh, a nice fact to illustrate this is that you can order deconstructed salads these days. Uh, What's the deconstructed salad? Well, you get, you get tomatoes, you get the lettuce, but you have to construct your salad yourself. So you get the ingredients, but separately.
2: <laughs> I should probably also say at this, uh, this juncture that I am gonna be the equivalent of the people who were at this at uh, the very start of this class. Saying that postmodernism is just relativity or something—that's <laughs> going to be—that's going to be where I'm coming from. Right. Yeah. Right.
0: That sounds good. So, David, perhaps you can you can help us untangle that the complex of postmodernism today.
1: Yeah, um, postmodernism as a term was first floated by Jean-Francois Lyotard in a book called The Postmodern Condition in a 1979 book. It's a wonderful little slim little volume. I urge everyone to check it out. He famously described postmodernism as motivated by incredulity toward metanarratives. In other words, big stories and then a, no, then a sense that the big stories had uh, you know, had their time and now needed to be interrogated. So that is a working, a sort of a useful starting point. But I mean, I think the reality is, Max, that there isn't one movement that we can succinctly define as postmodernism. We've talked about this. I think it's more likely that there are postmodernisms, plural. So, uh, you know, there is was the, the, the postmodernist movement, which uh, extended from 80s, 90s, maybe even into uh, the end of the century was various and it just played out in all sorts of cultural arenas, but for our purposes for, 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 for our purposes today, I think it's helpful to think of the word itself post modernism in order to understand post modernism you sort of have to get a sense of what modernism was because post modernist thinkers very self consciously oriented themselves towards what they thought of as a whole preceding era and at least according to them, what distinguished modernism was really that it was an enlightenment project, that it had a sense of objective reality, that the objective reality was knowable, that there were stable selves, and especially that there were universal universal truths that were that you know transcended all various cultures. This is what Leotard meant by metanarrative, right? It was a it was a modernism was a vast collection of meta-narratives. Um, postmodernism pretty much uh, denied all of those premises, but it didn't think of itself as independent from modernism. It thought of itself as deeply influenced by modernism, engaged in the ongoing kind of project of trying to unthink or undo modernism. So it it placed itself after modernism. So I think that's a that's kind of a just concentrating on the word and then adding an s to the end of it is a pretty uh helpful way of sort of getting a sense of what modern or postmodernism was it was really a, it was a set of, it was a mood almost as well as a set of of teachings that's probably a a good sort of umbrella way to think
0: of things well thank you for that first introductory note david so we've heard that there are certain postmodernisms for different disciplines and that there are also different relations postmodernism can have to modernism. Perhaps we can go back a little bit to that starting quote. David, can you tell us once more what are meta-narratives? Can you give us an an example?
1: Meta-narratives are these big coherent stories that the moderns told themselves. Typically they had a model of history built into them, they had a teleology, things were going in a certain direction. Um, I guess they were implicitly progressive, you know, um, and they could here again, you have a variety what they meant by that could be a variety of things in a French context. I think most French intellectuals thought of Marx and Freud as the as the thinkers they were pushing off against um, so you know you think of think of Marxism, think of Freudianism, those are just big, wonderful explanatory machines. The postmodern attitude toward them was to, you know, to see, to find in the universalizing narrative a whole set of sub narratives that could be told, some of which would play out against modernism.
0: You often hear that the sort of meta narrative of the Enlightenment was one of reason or, or the optimism that reason can, can explain everything, so it has universal value. Um, so um, what were these meta-narratives used for, David? So
1: as you know, Call Me Apia. wrote an essay called Is the Post in Postmodernism the Post in Postcolonial? And in that, he makes a number of really salient points, but one of them, which is that the way postmodernists understood modernism was, it was, it was inevitably a Western project. You don't have to take too many leaps to get from the fact that uh, the, the, the Enlightenment, and then its successor period, modernism, was a Western project to remember that the West, somewhat in the same period, was engaged in, uh, in imposing itself its, on most of the rest of the globe. Colonizers and such took with them Western ideals, and Apia argues that really what they were doing was creating kind of a unified global capitalist space, and that that was what, for the most part, you know, in the last analysis, modernism was. One of the things that postmodernism typically stresses is that the principles of the Enlightenment and then of modernism could be used uh, for instrumental purposes and were. And so that, you know, for instance, universalizing principles were really the principles of Western man, properly so-called, and they were uh, were used to obliterate all sorts of counter-traditions, counter-realities, counter-knowledges. And that emphasis is still very much with us.
0: So the metanarrative of reason serves in part as a legitimizing myth for, for colonialism.
1: Exactly. It can. And uh, it also does a lot of other things, of course. It, it drives the formation of most of the academic disciplines we have today. It generates what really counts as knowledge, and so on and so forth, it's not, a, it's not a simple picture. You can use an instrument for various purposes. And sometimes claims towards reason were used to uh, dispossess others.
2: And I, I assume that um, postmodernists weren't denying that there was a lot of truth in some of the, the elements of the meta narratives in, in the modern period, but rather were just saying that the idea you can get a meta narrative that explains everything is unrealistic.
1: Right. And that's a really good point to make. This goes back to Max's earlier comments, which is what postmodernism and poststructuralism, which we'll eventually talk about, has come to seem is a kind of, I call it, folk postmodernism, kind of a sense of relativism and the sense that all perspectives are equal. That is not at all what the, uh, what the postmodernists and or poststructuralists tended to claim. Exactly as you said, they were in this kind of tense, dependent relation on modernism. They weren't trying to deny the authority of all metanarratives. They were trying to inhabit the metanarratives and show where the narratives broke down, what they excluded, what they have been used for, as Max suggested. So the history that they told themselves was not one of rupture, where they simply, you know, they were wrong or were right. It's rather, we see something built into the project that its original thinkers either um, didn't or couldn't see.
0: I think Appiah puts it nicely when he says, quote, in each of these domains, there is an antecedent practice that laid claim to a certain exclusivity of insight. And in each of them, postmodernism is a name for the rejection of that claim to exclusivity, a rejection that is almost always more playful, though not necessarily less serious. And I think what this quote points out nicely is the fact that postmodernism is not strictly a rejection, it's a rejection of a claim to exclusivity.
1: Yeah, and that claim, Is made on behalf of an actual set of people who then say that uh, modernism is ours and then not other people's. Yeah, I think that's. I think you've hit on the important word in that quote. Um, Then he goes on to uh, to to point out um, that postmodernism is both playful and serious.
2: This this playful thing. What 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 are they getting at there?
1: There's really. Two emphases built into the, into the word play, and one of them is the kind of sense of internally structural shifting play in the sense, not of you know fun pastime, but as a set of uh, movements within a set of constraints that then provide a shifting meaning. But in the in the spirit of much of post structuralist work, one of the contrasts to modernism was that the post modernists they didn't present themselves as in the same serious mode that their predecessors did. So they really liked wordplay, they liked language games, they wrote in a kind of discursive way, some of them, not others. Um, All of that was a
0: linguistic practice
1: that signaled the close attention to these play in the other other sense I meant.
0: And perhaps they presented themselves in that more playful and less serious mode, not unserious, but less serious mode, because that, that serious mode is automatically an exclusive mode, so to speak.
1: Exactly right. When you think about it, the, the mode of high seriousness that was sometimes characteristic of modern thinkers is implicitly a claim to authority, right? It's continuous with the unspoken claim, which is you don't have authority. I do. So uh, by adopting a more playful mode, the postmodernists were trying to both distance themselves from their predecessors and undercut the kind of authority that they had assumed for themselves. So that put postmodernists in a very kind of interesting relationship. You know, it it was like, how do you playfully claim authority? Or or when when you're playful, are you necessarily trying to totally undercut the authority of the modernists? Or are you just showing it up for the kind of game that it actually is? Of course, you you earn the right to show that by playing the game yourself. So postmodernists were steeped in the thinking of their predecessors, but they uh, used some of the same claims or they reacted against those claims for what they hoped were different purposes.
2: Let me ask you this. So once the postmodernists have made their argument that there can be no metanarrative that is exclusive, and they've inhabited the meta-narrative. where do they go next?
1: So um, when you think about it, if they were to say modernist claims were advanced as truth, but in fact they're false, they would be playing the modernist game. So they don't want to do that. In fact, this is where play comes in. Instead of boxing themselves into a relationship of intellectual antagonism, they both take on board much of what modernists say and show that actually there's, um, uh, a lot that the modernist claims don 't encompass, or uh, as Max would remind us that the modernist claims have been advanced as a, you know as instruments in a power struggle so but, but your question's great because how do you slide out of the mode where you 're trying to tell a counter truth you know or how do you how do you resist replacing one meta narrative with another meta narrative so uh typically uh the, what the poststructuralists did, so I'm talking about poststructuralists specifically now, was they built themselves a set of linguistic tools by which they could investigate the claims of their modernist predecessors, but show that the claims themselves were, were unstable, that they presupp- that there were presuppositions which were being denied, or that identities were being presumed, and these identities were in fact relational or something like that. What they did was, it was really, I mean, this is, you, you can see this as we'll talk about what Derrida does with Levi-Strauss at the at the Baltimore conference. They, uh, they found ways to make canon of modernist thought say, or perhaps confess to the very kinds of anxieties that it had been designed to close down.
0: I feel like what we haven't talked about in Appiah and I feel like we have to talk about is that he isn't purely affirmative of postmodernism, right? He's also c- critical of postmodernism. Postmodernism purports to be a rejection of modernism, but for Appiah in some sense, at least repeats the modern mistake. Or... I, th-
1: I think that is in fact what he's implying. Remember the title of the essay is, is, is references postcolonialism. Mm-hmm. So I think what he's, trying to say is that uh at, at the time he was writing in 1991 that um the postmodernists had perhaps uh unwittingly reproduced some of the universalizing and thus exclusive gestures of modernism itself
2: yeah i see now before we finish in part 1 we've talked about postmodernism and in part 2 we're going to talk about post structuralism and derrida But let's explain what the difference exactly is between postmodernism and poststructuralism.
1: Right, they're often run together and it's true that they were more or less uh, contemporaneous. What we've been saying about postmodernism is uh, true in broad strokes, but it's really useful to focus on poststructuralists because they made a more specific set of claims and there you can look at the ways in which their debates played out around, you know, actually we've already said it's hard to reduce the postmodernism postmodernism debate to a set of uh, engagements over truth but actually the post structuralists did have a very distinct take on as derrida said truth presence man god and so forth the reason i think it's maybe more productive to think about the post structuralists is because they have a more specific intellectual lineage. They are uh, descended really, I think, from the linguist, Ferdinand de Saussure. Um, and they sort of weaponize his insights and use them against their intellectual predecessors, who I guess were modernists. But now the, the focus of, uh, of the, the zone of combat is more defined. Um, and now it comes down to what is, how is post-structuralism different from structuralism proper instead of how is post-modernism different from modernism proper. And I guess one of the most famous venues for that was the conference that took place at Johns Hopkins University from the 18th to the 21st of October 1966. And there, it was a kind of a grab bag of thinkers, but what came out of that conference would uh, change the trajectory of much of uh, intellectual work and certainly in the United States and also in Europe. Uh, That's where a young Derrida first emerged. That's where he got all kinds of pushback from both older humanists and structuralists proper. Everyone at the time recognized that something had changed and in fact, what had changed in one way was a kind of playfulness that was, go back to Hamish's point, that was uh, exhilarating and, and uh, for some and intimidating for others. So, as I, what happened there um, was really that uh, two intellectual traditions really were suddenly juxtaposed with one another. On the one hand, you had uh, Anglo-American humanist scholarship which you know was based on common sense realism and so on. On the other hand, you had a continental and mostly French tradition of reading techniques and of uh, philosophical investigation. And when you put the two together, the combination was explosive. So what you really have is kind of a, a sort of uh, enforced cross-pollination of uh, traditions of Anglo and continental hermeneutics that have a lot in common and can be assimilated to one another, but nonetheless are so far from being identical that the encounter is sure to generate all kinds of conflict, resentment, angst. And so it
2: proved. Wonderful, wonderful. Okay, okay. So everybody join us next time in the next episode where we talk about post-structuralism and in particular young Derrida and then old Derrida and then all the Derridas. And deconstruction. And deconstruction salads. And deconstruction. And deconstruction salads. Yeah. In the meantime, thank you, Max and David, for joining me.
1: Thank you. It was really great talking to you guys.
2: Remember to follow us if you're listening on Spotify. And remember to subscribe if you're on Apple Podcasts.